Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. There's been a lot of recent news coverage on voting rights in the U.S. Just last month, the U.S. Supreme Court denied yet another attempt by Alabama Republicans to reinstate a racially gerrymandered congressional map. It's a huge win for black voters in that state, but not all recent decisions have gone that way. In June, the Supreme Court chose not to hear a case about an amendment to Mississippi's constitution that barred people with certain felonies from voting. When it was first introduced in 1890, the amendment was designed with the express purpose of targeting black communities. The writers of the legislation chose felonies that they thought black people were more likely to commit. By not hearing the case, the Supreme Court allowed the amendment to remain intact. In the U.S., there's a long history of disenfranchising marginalized communities, but it's not just in southern states. Back in 1855, Connecticut became the first state to require a literacy test for voters. The goal? To take the vote away from Irish immigrants. And up until this year, Connecticut was one of only four states without in-person early voting. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we hear from journalist Ari Berman about democracy and voting rights. The conversation was recorded live at New Haven's International Festival of Arts and Ideas. Ari Berman is a senior voting rights reporter for Mother Jones. He's also the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari started by giving a brief lecture on voting rights and explained how the Supreme Court removed key parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The 10th anniversary of that decision in the case Shelby County v. Holder came shortly after this interview was recorded. There's been a lot of bad Supreme Court decisions uh, in American history, but I think it's safe to say this was one of the worst. Uh, I put it right up there with Citizens United and the Dobbs decision in terms of uh, how bad it was for our democracy. And, and for me, this decision was really uh, a come to Jesus moment, uh, even though I'm Jewish, because I think what it, what it reinforced is that what should be the most fundamental right in a democracy, the right to vote, remains the most contested. Uh, it's really remarkable uh, to read that decision where um, Chief Justice John Roberts says that things have changed dramatically in the South and that history did not end in 1965 because within hours of that decision, we saw states rush to implement new restrictions on voting. Texas implemented a law that said that you could vote with a gun permit, but not a student ID. North Carolina passed a sweeping rewrite of its election laws. It, it eliminated same-day voter registration. It implemented strict voter ID. It cut early voting. And this bill was challenged uh, in federal courts. And one of the things North Carolina Republicans did is they cut Sunday voting when black churches hold souls to the polls voter mobilization drives. And so the court said, well, why did you cut Sunday voting? 
And the North Carolina Republican said, well, some voters were using it more than others. And the court said, okay, well, which voters were using it more than others? And the North Carolina Republican said, counties that were disproportionately African-American and disproportionately Democratic. And the court said, you just admitted to us in federal court that you passed this law to try to disenfranchise people based on their party, but more significantly based on their race. And it found that this law targeted black voters in the court's words with almost surgical precision. And it, it was remarkable to read this decision and think this didn't come out in 1866. This didn't come out in 1966. This came out in 2016. And of course, some of this is still going on uh, in the present day. I started covering voting rights a few years before that decision. And I started covering it after the 2010 election when so many key states flipped from blue to red. Places like Ohio and Pennsylvania, North Carolina and Wisconsin. And we began to see a wave of new restrictions to make it harder to vote. Strict voter ID laws, cutting early voting, closing polling places, purging the voting rolls, disenfranchising people with past felony convictions, all of that kind of stuff. And this clearly seemed to me an attempt to try to create an electorate that would nullify the election of the first black president and to try to create an electorate that would be older, whiter, more conservative, as opposed to younger, more diverse, and more progressive. And this seemed like a big deal. All of these states basically all at the same time changing their voting laws. But at the time, 10 years ago or more, it wasn't really getting any attention. So I wrote my first story about voting rights uh, back in August of 2011 for Rolling Stone. It was called The GOP War on Voting. And you pretty much could <laughs> reprint it word for word today, probably be a little bit worse now than it even was then. And so that's really when it, I became aware of this. Then things accelerated after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, and they accelerated even more uh, after the election of Donald Trump and to where we are today. But if you think about American history, we have this very peculiar history where we have these incredible democratic ideals, right? I mean, it says in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. We'll leave aside the fact that women aren't included in that statement. But basically, we have all of this really inspirational language in our founding charter. But in practice, all men and certainly all women were not able to vote. Only white male property owners, people like me, quite frankly, were able to vote at our country's founding in most states. White men without property couldn't vote. Women couldn't vote. Most African-Americans couldn't vote. Native Americans weren't even considered citizens until 1924. So more than half the country was excluded from participating despite these lofty ideals and this promise of democracy in our founding charter. Then we begin to enfranchise people. First, we enfranchise white men without property. Then we fight a civil war, pass three amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, that are supposed to guarantee equal rights for formerly enslaved people, that are supposed to write into the Constitution for the first time this promise of equality. And for a few brief years in the South, there's this remarkable period of integrated government for the first time in American history. There is black senators and governors elected from places like Louisiana and Mississippi, something that's never happened since. But then there's a vicious backlash. And first there's violence, then there's fraud. Then when the segregationists get control of these states, they change all the laws to legally disenfranchise black voters. And that situation exists for almost 100 years. And so 
we have this very strange situation where the 15th Amendment explicitly says the right to vote shall not be denied or abridged on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. But for nearly 100 years, until the passage of the Voting Rights Act, those words are largely ignored. And uh, the book that I wrote about the Voting Rights Act, Give Us the Ballot, the title comes from the first major speech that Martin Luther King gave about voting rights in 1957. He was just 26 years old, and King chose to give this speech in May of 1957 because it was three years after the Brown versus Board of Education decision that was supposed to desegregate public schools in the South. But no schools had desegregated. And King was asking the question why? How could the Supreme Court have this monumental decision that was just ignored throughout the South? And the reason he concluded was because African-Americans in the South didn't have the right to vote. They didn't have the ability to actually change the political equation in the South to integrate schools or to do anything else. So he said, give us the ballot, because he believed the ballot was the key to changing people's lives. So the Voting Rights Act was really a transformational piece of legislation. It struck down those poll taxes and literacy tests and grandfather clauses and all the other things that prevented so many people from being able to vote. If you were black and you lived in a place like Selma, Alabama, you needed, you needed to name all 67 county judges to get on the voting rolls. Something that I'm pretty certain the 67 county judges themselves would not have been able to do had they been asked that question. I'm sure you're all aware of the pivotal events that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act, the brutal beating of civil rights activists like John Lewis marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. There's this conception that the Voting Rights Act was this really powerful piece of legislation that did a whole lot of good in the 1960s, but those fights are over. We're not that country anymore. In fact, that was the narrative that was told by John Roberts in the Shelby County decision. It was one of progress. And of course, we've made enormous progress. No one's gonna doubt the progress. But what was ignored was all of the attempts to try to overturn, to nullify, to reverse that progress. And that's what we're seeing right now in the present day. Because after the 2020 election, 33 states have passed 108 new restrictions on voting. Basically, what the entire Republican Party did is they said, we couldn't overturn the election. So we're going to try to institutionalize the insurrection through other means. We're going to make it so that we don't have to overturn an election. We don't have to steal it after the fact, because we'll just do it all ahead of time. We'll just create the conditions so that it will favor our side before anyone's even cast a ballot. So we've seen states like Georgia and Arizona and Texas and so many places change not one part of their voting laws, but all of their voting laws. The law that passed Georgia in 2011 had 16 different provisions, making it harder to vote. I mean, this is hard for people like me that cover this stuff to keep track. It's complicated to explain that it's more difficult to vote by mail. There's fewer mail ballot drop boxes. It's easier to purge people from the voting rolls. It's, they're closing polling places. They're impeding fair election administration, because now we have not just voter suppression, but we have election subversion, right? So they're trying to do it on the front end and the back end. Uh, there was just a law that passed in Texas recently that eliminated the position of election administrator in only in counties with 3.5 million people or more. Never seen legislation like this. 
only in counties with 3.5 million people or more. Well, guess which has a population of 3.5 million or more? Only one county in Texas. Harris County, Texas, home to Houston, the largest blue county in the state. They didn't just do that. They passed another bill saying, we're going to give the Secretary of State the power to appoint new election officials, if we don't like what's happening, in counties with 4 million people or more. Well, guess what county only has 4 million people or more? Harris County, Texas. So they passed a bill that only applies, that takes over election administration in the largest blue county in the state. This is not subtle stuff. This is not subtle at all. It's very obvious what is happening here. And so those are the threats to democracy that we face. I will say that there is some good news that's happening. I, I want to talk a little bit about um, the good news. The first piece of good news is that a record number of people ran in 2020 trying to overturn free and fair elections. And in every battleground state, they lost. So that, that's really, really, really significant because trust me, it could have been a whole lot worse. The fact that election deniers were running in places like Wisconsin and Arizona and Pennsylvania. Now, I should mention a lot of them did win in other places. There were still 200 members of Congress that are elected who didn't believe that the 2020 election was fair and square. So it's not like these threats have diminished altogether, um, but they have lessened. And I think what that showed is that when democracy becomes a defining issue, there is a strong pro-democracy majority in this country. And the other thing to me that was uh, really uh, inspiring is that we are seeing at the local level new movements for democracy. And we're seeing new movements for democracy in places right here, like Connecticut. Um, Connecticut just passed a state-level voting rights act. It became the sixth state uh, in the country to pass a state-level voting rights act. It's now a place that has two weeks of early voting that it didn't have before. Voters have a chance in the next election to pass no-excuse absentee voting. These are things, quite frankly, that a lot of Southern states that have very, very bad records on voting rights already have. Georgia and Texas already have three weeks of early voting. You've been able to vote by mail in Florida for two decades. So a lot of places in the North have been very slow. And you know, I hear this all the time from people in Connecticut. I live in New York. People in Connecticut, New York, and Massachusetts, they get very fired up about what's happening in Georgia or Texas. They, you know, what can I do? I'm going, going down to Alabama. I'm going down to Houston. I'm like, no, no, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. But you can have the biggest impact in your own backyard. And people need to think about what's happening in my own state. States are national battles right now. Everyone is paying attention. Every state is paying attention to what another state does. When one state passes a bad election law, that makes it more likely that another state might do it. When one state passes a good election law, people start saying, if that works, maybe we should do it too. So that's why there used to be one state that had a state level voting rights act. Now there's six. I bet you in a few years, there are probably gonna be a dozen. I think it's really important to think about what you can do to build democracy at a local level. Keep democracy issues front and center in 2024. I think a lot of people have become a little complacent that all these people lost in 2022, so we don't have a problem anymore. The election deniers are reforming. They're running again. They're running for other positions. Their leader is running for president. Even if he has to run from a jail cell, he's running for president. They're reforming and they're getting more subtle. They're doing the kind of things like they're doing in Harris County. 
they're becoming more subtle about their tactics. So democracy has to remain a front and center issue. And we have to connect democracy to all the other issues that people care about. You take the Dobbs decision. That decision was about democracy. It was about the fact that we had a rigged, corrupt, illegitimate Supreme Court take away people's rights. And then you look at the reasoning that Samuel Alito gave in his opinion. He said, all we're doing is returning democracy to the states. Well, he's returning democracy to the very states where the Voting Rights Act has been gutted, where there's rampant partisan gerrymandering, where billionaires are buying elections. There's not democracy in those states. There's not democracy because the Supreme Court already took away democracy in those states. So we have to understand if you care about a woman's right to choose, if you care about clean air and clean water, if you care about racial and social justice, all of those issues connect to whether or not we have a strong democracy. And the last thing I'll say is that we need to keep thinking about long-term structural change. That even if everyone could vote in this country, we still have a US Senate in which someone in Wyoming has 68 times the voting power of someone in California. We still have an electoral college where in one year, the guy who loses the popular vote can win the electoral college. We still have districts all across the country in which a candidate can get fewer votes, but his party can get more seats. All of that is stuff we have to keep in mind as well, because it's not like the Supreme Court woke up one day and decided they wanted to gut the Voting Rights Act. This was a 50-year project to do it. And so on the other side, there needs to be a 50-year project to defend voting rights, to think about what does the next Voting Rights Act look like? What is the next protection of voting rights? What are the things we need to do to protect voting rights so we don't keep having these conversations year after year after year. That was journalist and author Ari Berman giving a talk at this year's International Festival of Arts and Ideas in New Haven. When we return, Ari and I talk more about voting rights, including what Democrats could have done differently to protect and secure access to voting. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're hearing from journalist and author Ari Berman about democracy and voting rights in the U.S. Our conversation was recorded at the International Festival of Arts and Ideas in New Haven. When you think about that history of democracy, that contentious history in the U.S., you think about where we are today, how central are issues like race and identity 
to understanding the continued struggle for voting rights in the U.S.? Well, what I tell people all the time is that America has only been a multiracial democracy for 50 plus years because I don't even believe that we were a true democracy before the passage of the Voting Rights Act because so many people were excluded. Uh, and so there's this narrative that progress only works one way, right? There's the famous line from Martin Luther King that Barack Obama always quoted, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But I think they would probably admit it, it bends toward justice, but it often snaps back, right? And that the moments of greatest progress are often followed by moments of the greatest backlash, right? We saw that after Reconstruction. We saw that after the Voting Rights Act. We saw that after the racial justice movement of 2020. We're going through it right now. I mean, all of the laws meant to eradicate the teaching of history, that's one of those moments of retrenchment. I think it's important to remember our history and to remember it in its fullness and its complexity and its ugliness. And you talked, for example, about what was happening in the South. And I was reminded that a lot of the tactics you mentioned, like the grandfather's clause, the poll tax, that were used to disenfranchise blacks in the South, often originated here in the North to keep white ethnic immigrants from being able to vote. The other piece that I think we have to reconcile, Ari, is there are a lot of people in this country who say voting does not matter anymore. Given the influx of money where people can buy a seat or buy influence or buy ads, often people feel not apathetic, but ambivalent about voting. How do we reconcile that, that very real feeling yeah. of people who think that their vote does not matter and that their opinion does not matter yeah. in politics? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a really good point. And it's difficult, right? Because you have to tell people your vote would matter more if we didn't have gerrymandered districts. Your vote would matter more if we didn't have billionaires buying elections. Your, would vote, your vote would matter more if we had laws that encouraged everyone to participate. So we have to say we need to strike down all those barriers. But your vote is a way to start breaking down those barriers. And if you don't vote, it's not like nobody else is going to vote. You're just ceding your power to somebody else, right? But I think now people have to understand voting is just the first step you can take, and then you have to go further. Um, but it's true that even at our greatest moments, our voter turnout is less than pretty much any other advanced democracy. And there's other countries, like Australia, where voting is mandatory, and they have a totally different way of thinking about it. They don't think that voting is a right or responsibility. They think it's part of citizenship. And if voting is mandatory, you can't prohibit people from voting. No, we've talked before about disenfranchisement, continued disenfranchisement in the United States and the ways that particular groups are barred from voting, even if they wanted to, even if they are legally of age to do so. So, for example, people who are incarcerated yeah. or formerly incarcerated. Help us understand how that historical use of barring people from voting still has an impact on the things that you're talking about, not just who is voting, but the outcomes of elections and how much disproportionate power particular areas have based on how many prisons yeah. may be there. Yeah. Well, felon disenfranchisement laws are a direct result of the Jim Crow era. Uh, what happened after the Civil War, you know this history very well, you're from Virginia, 
States started passing black codes. They started passing laws that were, again, they didn't mention race, but they were specifically about trying to create a system of mass incarceration for African Americans, and then saying, if you were arrested for the flimsiest thing, then you couldn't vote. And that was the first way that many of these states prevented formerly enslaved people from being able to be citizens and then exercising citizenship like voting rights. And so in many states, like in Florida, these laws are a direct result of that kind of thing. And again, America is an outlier here. A lot of countries never take away people's right to vote because they don't think that you should ever lose a core part of citizenship, no matter what you've done. Or they make it really easy to get that right back because they believe that if you want to reintegrate someone into society, treating them as a full citizen is the best way to do so. But I think this is one of the things where we've seen some really, really ugly efforts to try to disenfranchising people very recently. If we say that voting is so central to democracy, why haven't we seen that federal national level of push to even codify a right to vote? We use that language, yeah. but we don't actually have a constitutional right to vote. So it's a really good question. Um, what I always say is that Democrats need to be as aggressive in expanding voting rights as Republicans are at suppressing voting rights. And in some places they are. In some places, states have, in the last few years, have taken dramatic expanses in voting rights. So in some places it is, but in some places it's not. And I think at the federal level, there was two things. There were the structural barriers, like the filibuster in the Senate, that dissuaded Democrats from even wanting to try in the first place. Then there was a reluctance to believe that voting rights was somehow divisive, that somehow you would lose support if you tried to push this thing. And I'm thinking, how is protecting democracy divisive? But that's what a lot of people thought. And I think on a practical level, there was a mistaken calculation made by the president that if he pushed Joe Manchin on voting rights, he would lose him on other issues. Well, unfortunately, he already he lost her on other issues anyway. I also believe that if the shoe was on the other foot and Republicans found themselves at risk of widespread disenfranchisement, of being written out of power, of having their elections overturned, they would have moved Mountain and Hill to do this because we already saw this. We already saw the minute that Mitch McConnell didn't like the filibuster, he got rid of it for Supreme Court nominees, right? So Mitch McConnell had no problems keeping a Supreme Court seat open for almost a year and then eliminating the filibuster to get his guy on the Supreme Court. And so I think there's been a, a lot of asymmetric warfare between the parties when it comes to democracy issues. When we teach political science courses, we always say, the rules of the game matter. And in some ways, the perceptions of the rules of the game matter to the kinds of outcomes that you're mentioning, who's in power. And so much of what we hear to justify these rules is that it's about election integrity. It's about preventing fraud when all of the data, all of the research shows that is really a non-existent problem. And so we get that set of rules. But Ari, talk to us about some of the rules that may not make as much sense in that domain. For example, in Georgia, outlawing volunteers from being able to give a person a cup of water while they're waiting in line to vote. 
or not allowing elderly people or those with physical challenges to have a stool with them while they wait in line for four hours. What's the justification behind those kinds of rules about voting and access? A lot of these things have been shown to have nothing to do with fraud. Take that same Georgia law. One of the things they did is they removed the Secretary of State, who is a Republican, but defended the integrity of the election from the state election board. They removed the guy that was in charge of preventing voter fraud from the state board of election, and then they gave the state board of election the power to take over election operations in counties. That has nothing to do with voter fraud. That's just a pure power grab. Same thing with in Harris County. That had nothing to do with voter fraud taking over the election administration in the state's largest blue county. So I think more and more it's clear that, that they've just created this myth, and it's a very powerful myth, and I think it plays into a lot of things that motivate Republicans. Because remember, when Trump talked about overturning the election, he focused on certain places. It was always Atlanta and Milwaukee and Phoenix and Detroit. He always talked about the same kind of places, the same urban areas. No one was stealing votes in rural Florida. It was all the inner cities with all the Democrats and people of color that were doing all the vote stealing. I mean, so it was clear what they were trying to do here. This was part of a larger political strategy. And I think basically the problem for the modern Republican Party is they're at odds with the changing demographics of the country. And I think that's basically motivating everything they're doing right now, from restricting voting to restricting education to restricting so many other things. They're trying to prevent a future in which white people are the minority. And I think trying to restrict who can participate is one of the most effective things they can do or they think they can do to try to stop it. Coming up, more from journalist and author Ari Berman. I'll ask him about the relationship between immigration policy and voting rights. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we're talking about voting rights with journalist and author Ari Berman. The conversation was recorded live at the International Festival of Arts and Ideas. Shortly after the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was signed into law, there was a major change in U.S. immigration policy. It allowed more people who weren't from Western Europe to come to the United States. Ask Ari about that relationship between immigration, voting rights, and language. A few months after LBJ signed the Voting Rights Act in August of 1965, he signed the Immigration and Nationality Act in October of 1965. And he viewed these bills as complementary because what the Voting Rights Act did is it got rid of racism or it tried to get rid of racism in the political sphere. And what the immigration bill did was it tried to get rid of racism in the immigration policy. But the Voting Rights Act combined with changes to immigration law dramatically changed the country's demographics. And you know we went from people of color making up 2% of immigrants to making up 80 or 90% of immigrants um, in, in a short period of time. And then the next battleground for the Voting Rights Act became about expanding access for what they called language minority groups. So the Voting Rights Act was expanded in 1975 to encompass language minorities, whether it was Hispanics in Texas um, or Asian Americans or um, native speakers, whatever it was, they had protection because they were kind of forgotten. 
The original Voting Rights Act was to deal with one problem, the problem of disenfranchisement of African Americans in the Jim Crow South. But then there was all these other problems. New York City, you know, where I where I lived for a long time, had a poll, had a literacy test that was aimed at Puerto Ricans and Dominicans until 1968. <laughs> so the other thing that's going to be important is forming coalitions, right? Because in a lot of places, including in the South, it's not white or black anymore, right? There's in places like Metro Atlanta or in Harris County, it's blacks and Latinos and Asian Americans and lots of different people who are forming coalitions. And that's not what they're trying to go after. They're not just trying to dismantle black districts or majority black districts. They're trying to dismantle districts in which people come together to try to elect candidates of their choice. And that's the next battleground. And figuring out how to protect those coalitions are really important because that's the future of the country. I do already want us to look forward because we are heading into the 2024 election cycle. There's a lot of attention right now uh, with regard to who's running for president, but you talked about the change that can happen at the local level. So those state level, local level races that will happen in 2024 will be critical. What should we be paying attention to? What should we be preparing for and doing in the lead up to that critical election, given what it could mean for the next phase of voting rights yeah. in this country? Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a really good question. I'm less concerned with who is running than, and more concerned with the conditions under which they're running, what the landscape will be. Um, because I think a lot of people feel like we dodged a bullet in 2022. They feel like maybe voter suppression didn't have that big of an impact. But remember, this was in a midterm election. Midterm election voters are people that tend to vote in every election cycle. Presidential election voters are people that often show up every four years. They're not going to be as well-informed in some cases. They're not going to be as wealthy. They're not going to be as affluent. They're not going to be as used to the political process. There's going to be many more first-time voters. Those people that tend to get caught up in these kind of new restrictions on voting. These new restrictions on voting work to deepen existing socioeconomic barriers, existing things that people are uncomfortable in the political process. So I think we really, in the absence of federal legislation protecting voting rights, we're going to need a massive voter mobilization, voter protection effort. We need to pay attention to things um, that are happening, like states that are going to draw new voting maps, for example. The Supreme Court actually just issued a good decision for once um, that said that Alabama had passed a racially gerrymandered map for failing to draw a second majority black district. Uh, this was authored by John Roberts, who gutted the Voting Rights Act. I nearly fell out of my chair when I saw this decision um, because it was like John Roberts had a completely different interpretation of America uh, in <laughs> June of 2023 than he had in June of 2013. And that's going to be really important. The, the U.S. House is decided by four or five seats. So if you can redraw districts in places like Alabama and Louisiana and Georgia and South Carolina and Texas, First off, that creates fairness in those states that didn't exist before, but that also has um, a national uh, impact as well. Um, and then I think you know, people just have to think about there's lots of important local races that don't get a lot of attention. New York just did something that I think is really good. They said all local ele elections have to be in presidential election years because that's when the most people vote. And so when you have an election in June of 2023, by nature, fewer people are going to participate. But you say... We're going to try to have these elections when people are paying attention. That's one way you could try to increase participation in the process. 
we ended our conversation with an audience Q&A. It seems that our approach today to uh, fighting for voting rights is mostly illegal. Mark Elias and great people are struggling in courts all over the country. Isn't an important element that should be uh, worked on at this moment is the kind of uh, street heat, the kind of massive uh, protest and civil disobedience that really won the day uh, for the Voting Rights Act and for civil, civil rights generally? Really good question. I think that's something that people are thinking a lot about. After the Voting Rights Act was passed, civil rights groups had a lot of success in using the courts to strike down discriminatory barriers, first barriers to voting, then barriers to representation. So that's kind of what they became comfortable with, right? The fight shifted from the movement to the courts. Now, what courts are you filing before? You're filing before courts where there's 234 Trump just judges appointed, right? And a whole lot of judges appointed by Bush one and two and Ronald Reagan. And often those are the liberal justices now, given how things have shifted to the right. Um, but so, I mean, I get what Mark is doing. I get what all those groups are doing. But I think they would say this is only one part of the strategy. And to me, that's what was missing from the whole fight over voting rights before the U.S. Congress was the movement in the streets to try to pressure them. People tried to do it, but we didn't see the protests to pass the Voting Rights Act, a new Voting Rights Act, or the past the Freedom to Vote Act that we saw, for example, after the death of George Floyd. And I'm not saying that things are related, but I'm saying if we had had that kind of movement, we had had millions of people in the streets, I think that would have put pressure on a Joe Manchin, put pressure on a Kirsten Cinema, put pressure on Joe Biden to make this a priority more than it did. So I think a lot of people have just become complacent in working through the normal channels. I also want to remind us of the number of new laws and policies that were introduced post those uprisings in 2020 to criminalize protests yeah. and to make it more difficult for people to even gather in order to raise their voices. So those are the ways in which, as you said before, Ari, when you have massive movements, massive resistance, it is often countered with efforts to suppress that. And we've seen historically what happens when that is the movement. Right here, please. Yes, thank you very much, Ari. This is a wonderful presentation. I'm thinking in terms of the fourth estate, the media, that, and its role, the loss of local media, yeah, particularly, problem. right? And, and what... Are there movements or ideas on how uh, the media can be re-empowered yeah. and what's happened? You know, we think of Fox News in terms of there being a deliberate yeah. decision to have a consciously politically oriented media. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it sounds self-interested because I'm a member of the media, but I do think the decline of journalism has been a crisis and is a crisis for democracy because so many of the most important fights over voting are at the state level and they're passed by state legislatures. And there's so few reporters covering those state legislatures in general. How many people are in Lansing or other state capitals across the country? And, you know, I and people like me that cover this stuff nationally, we can only be in so many places. So if there's a fight happening in Austin and a fight happening in Madison and a fight happening in Atlanta, we can't be in all those places at once. So we rely on local journalists to tell us what's happening on people that are covering things, not just at the state house, but then are covering the ripple effects 
in communities all across the country. And so this has been a, a huge crisis for journalism. And you know, people are thinking about how do we re-empower local media? How do we invest in local media? And there are, there are efforts to do it. But whatever investment is happening in media pales in comparison to the amount of jobs being lost. I mean, every single day, every single year, thousands of more journalists lose their jobs. And it's very hard to have an informed citizenry without a robust media. And so on some level, it starts with us. You know, people like to think everything's free, but if you don't pay for it, then the person creating it isn't gonna be able to do it. But I also think we need to think about, like again, other countries, they invest in media. I think also the pervasive mistrust felt in particular pockets when media is demonized yeah. by particular political figures and also the ways in which people access news. My students tell me that they get the majority of their news from social media, right? And so what does that mean for the quality? What does that mean for the sort of civic and information literacy that we all need, regardless of age, regardless of generation, so that as we are bombarded with info, we actually know what is accurate. That was my conversation with journalist and author Ari Berman. It was recorded at the International Festival of Arts and Ideas. Ari Berman is senior voting rights reporter for Mother Jones, and he's author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tolarski. Special thanks to the International Festival of Arts and Ideas. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you love an episode, please remember to leave us a comment. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>